tradition of the reading of Scripture here at First Assembly of God. Let me just say this very carefully today. I've got two passages of Scripture that are going to be my Scripture text, one of which is more lengthy. I'm just going to kind of follow it down little by little. This is actually the subtext today, but I'm going to go ahead and read it. I have transitioned away prematurely from the series Born Again. I have did so through prayer and contemplation of what I should do as your pastor and how I should speak and communicate. Um, series preaching is a great thing, but at the same time, I'm more concerned about having a word from the Lord than I am having a series for you to follow. Series are very good and can be effectual, but if God just quickens something in your heart, then you want to be true to share that. And so I have chosen to, again, to lay that aside, pick up a different context here today. Now, this is a very... Um, this is a, a very direct passage of Scripture. It's actually in John's Gospel, the third chapter, which we have been for the last two weeks, but the subject matter has transitioned. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus here, who is a ruler among the Jews. The passage that we drew our attention to the, the previous several, two weeks has been verses 1 through 8, as Jesus brought the revelation of the need for every man, woman, boy, girl to be born again, born from above, and born by the Spirit. But now here, to a degree, Jesus is, as he speaks, I think the more that I study the Scriptures, I become more aware of the Jewishness of the gospel. What I mean by that is Jesus spoke primarily to Jews in Jewish language with Jewish connotations. We read it from the outside world. We read it from the Gentile with Gentile thinking, and, and sometimes we miss the heart or the core. Remember, Jesus himself said these words, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, we know that his ministry on the cross was for all men everywhere. But sometimes the language that he used was first applicable to the Jewish people. Now, he's going to address the light here in just a moment in this passage of Scripture. And the reality is you and I are very familiar with Jesus is the light. We're familiar. He is the light of the world. We're very familiar with that context. However, before that application, God expected the Jewish people through the revelation of the Mosaic law to be the light of the world. Because, just very carefully, it was a revelation of the one true God. They held the law. The law revealed that there was not a pantheon of gods as all other cultures worshipped, but there was one God. But much of Jesus' reproof for the Jewish people is they had lost their way. That's why in, in the, what we call the, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus, to a degree, reproved the Jewish people, he said, a city set on a hill should not be hid. You, he said, a light, a candle should not be hidden under a bushel. It should be shown. He's speaking to the Jewish people. They had lost their way. He said, if the salt has lost its flavor. Now, some of those words can be echoed in the church, too. There's a, there's a, there's a, a surface level of truth, and then there's a below the surface level. And so, even though he was speaking to the Jewish people, he often was speaking through the Jewish people. Come on. Speaking even to our generation. What good is the church if we've lost our flavor? In our sense, if we've lost our spiritual strength, if we have become more, if we are just simply a, um, in essence, a social gathering. If that's all we are, then have we truly obtained to what God in our, uh, originally intended us to be? 
I don't believe so. I believe God means more for us. I do. I believe he, ex- he expects the church to, to affect the moral culture uh, uh, in, in our whatever generation. So today, now let, think about this as we read in John's gospel. These are very strong words, the 19th, the 20th, and the 20th verse. And this is the judgment or the condemnation, King James English, that light is come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Those are strong words spoken to us from Jesus. Now, for everyone that doeth evil, he hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. Now, that's my subtitle. The message is found in Matthew's gospel, the 11th chapter. That's where we're going to simply allow the text to unfold little by little in front of our eyes. But I want you to tuck away in your spiritual, you know, memory today, your spiritual memory banks, that men love darkness rather than light. But that if you do the truth... You come to the light because you're not ashamed of what God's done in your life. Come on, somebody. Amen? So, for a title today, unfortunately, it's negative. Men love darkness rather than light. Let's pray. Father, I humble myself. I'm stirred in my spirit today, God, to speak to this church family, and I'm praying that you will add your agreement, that, that, Father, this message is not, Father, in as the words of the condemnation of the prophets of old, that I am not prophesying according to the dictates or the desires of my own heart, but that I am speaking forth the word of God, that this is the quickened, revealed word to this fellowship for this season, for this moment. Would you make it alive in our ears today in Jesus' name? And everybody said... Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. I'd like to allow the message just real quickly to kind of unfold for us, reminding you that John 3, 19 through 21 is my subtext that is going to coincide with the actual text that we're going to just read in little pockets and allow me to elaborate. Now, as we do so, let me say this. You're going to follow with me in Matthew's gospel, the 11th chapter. Now, let me say this again. I believe that the scriptures are so mysterious, and they're so wonderful, and they're so, they are the gift of God. I love what Paul said to Timothy. He said, from a child, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. I believe the scriptures hold for us the answers in the world. Scriptures reveal to us to adequately or rightly interpret the scriptures, we must always be reminded that there is a first 
application of the Word of God. The first application is to the original audience, whether it be a story, which we read moments ago, we're about to read now, which is the an account of Jesus communicating either with a large group or an individual, and the author has captured those words. Our desire is to understand its first application. But beyond this, we want to say, but God, what are you saying to us through that passage of Scripture. Now, you have to be very, very careful because it's easy to twist and to manipulate the Word of God, to force or coerce a particular belief on people. I don't want to attempt to do that today. In the passage of Scripture that we will read, Jesus did say, to him that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. That was also echoed in the seven letters written unto the churches in Asia Minor as Jesus brought reproof to the churches, and he said, he that has an ear. So you and I are reading an historic account. We're going to discover its first application, but hidden in the first application is a direct application to us as well because God, God's Word is living. Come on, this is not an antiquated book that I'm speaking from today. This is a revealed word from God. God's word does not return to him void, but it accomplishes what he sends it into the earth to do. So in Matthew's gospel, the story is here, Jesus has ended speaking, verse, verse, of his 12 disciples as he has about to send them into certain cities, two by two, to minister. And then the, ver the, 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 the context shifts. So now when John, and I want to take a moment, we'll talk about this. Let's just read this on down for just a moment. When John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Now, those words seem almost misplaced because John was such a bold prophet of God that had proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah. You can remember when he, baptizing in the river Jordan, said to his followers when Jesus made his way to be baptized, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. And he said these words recorded in John's gospel. He said, he being Jesus must increase and I must decrease. But unfortunately, he has been imprisoned by Herod. And as a result, in the solitary confinement of that Roman cell, doubts have begun to creep in. He's pondering, is the man that I have proclaimed to be the Messiah and allowed my thriving ministry to follow him rather than me, is he truly who I thought he was? And that goes down. And we're going to talk about John just a little bit further in a moment of time. Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said unto them, to those two, go and show John again the things which you do hear and see. How powerful is this? He said, tell John that the blind are receiving their sight. Isn't that something? He said that the lame are walking, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. 
and the dead are raised up. Now, the reality is John perhaps was like many others, believing that the messianic ministry of the Messiah would be a little bit more militant, and that it will potentially rid the nation of Roman occupation. But Jesus said to him, now notice, John, I'm not calling an army to fight in a natural war. I'm not calling soldiers, and I'm not giving them swords and shields and, and causing them to uh, learn battle so that we can overthrow this Roman occupation. But rather, John, Jesus came on ministry. He was a warrior, but he was warring on a different level. He came to unseat not Herod or not Pontius Pilate. He came to unseat Satan. Come on, somebody. He was God from heaven had sent his son. The Bible says the son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus had set his target a little bit higher than just warfare with the Roman empire. He was unseating principalities and powers and dominions and authorities that had bound men in darkness. And he said, so you go tell John what you've seen. You tell him that the people had sat in darkness are now seeing the bright light of God's glorious grace. People that couldn't hear the truth of the word of God are now hearing the truth of the word of God. He, people that were bound and crippled and limited and arms shriveled, shriveled in are now worshiping and praising God. You go tell John that the dead that were hidden in buried tombs uh, he said I've called them out of darkness and into God's marvelous light you go tell John and I tell you I've just imagined today that when those uh, those messengers got back to the jail cell that day oh what it was a revival that was a one man revival that day when John heard what John heard about the ministry of Jesus now I want to take a moment to talk because then Jesus shifts his attention he said, so tell John, blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. And then he speaks about John. And I want to correspond to John for a few moments if I can because I think it's very important for us to do so today. Let's go a little further. And Jesus said, seventh verse, he said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see a reed? So he's talking about his ministry. What did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man that's clothed in soft raiment. Behold that they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet, I say unto you, look at this, and more than a prophet. For this is he. He gives clarification to this man that was clothed in camel's hair and with a leathern girdle about his waist, whose diet consisted many times of grasshoppers and honey, whose ministry was provocative and it shook the nation unto spiritual repentance. He said, this is actually what had been written in the book of Malachi, that God would send his messenger before his face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Now, let me take you into John's ministry for just a moment and how important it was to his day because we need to see some similarities of this in our culture today, just to be honest, if I can make a, a, a spiritual analogy for just a moment. With the last recorded prophetical voice in ancient Israel was Malachi the prophet. Malachi is the man that gave us the prophecy of he that would come. 
And this was during the time of the, of the, the dispersed Israelites taken captive during Babylon, having been allowed to go back to their homeland. They've rebuilt the temple. They're worshiping God. They've decided to make sure that they don't fall into the trap of idolatry of previous generations. During this what's called the intertestament period of time, during this last trailing of the, of the, of the Old Testament prophets, 400 years of prophetical silence emerge. The scribes come on the scene. The Pharisees come on the scene. The established order of worship is the synagogue. Every village would have a synagogue. You would go and hear the teachings of Scripture, but in the midst of it, people lost their way. They become bound by the oracles of men. That's why Jesus reproved the teachings of the Pharisees, and he said, you have made the commandments of men equivalent to the commandments of God, and so Jesus himself would reprove them. And I love this passage of Scripture in Luke's gospel, the third chapter. I'm just going to read it to you. I'll jump over there. They don't have to post it on the screen because this is the sudden appearance of John the Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate is governor of Judea, Herod is the tetrarch of Galilee, Philip is the tetrarch of Iturea and of the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius is the tetrarch of Abilene. Herod's sons are now reigning in his kingdom in three different provinces, and the Bible says that Annas and Caiaphas are the high priest. So we've got political leaders that are in place, we have supposed spiritual leaders in place, Annas and Caiaphas, but Luke said this, and oh, it just bears witness in my spirit today. Luke said this, but the word of God came unto John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That says to me, you can be politically prominent and not have a word from God. You can be religiously astute and be trained in all the learned institutions of your day and still not have the word from God. But John, in the wilderness, hears a word from God that sends him to the desert places, preaching the uncompromising truths of the power of the gospel. Now, let me take you a little bit further into the history of John for just a moment of why I love this wording. A lot of times you look over it. It says, the word of God came unto John. What word is he talking about and how did this word arrive and did it become uh, real to John? I believe the word that Luke is referencing here is the word that was spoken by two individuals. First is by an angel. Remember the story, Luke's gospel, the first chapter. His father, Zacharias, his wife, Elizabeth, she's barren. He's burning incense behind the veil in the holy place, in the temple, when there this aged priest has the appearance of an angel come to him and promising him that his prayer has been heard and that his wife would bear a son and that he would be the prophet of the highest. He would go in front of the coming of the Messiah. Now, that prophetical word, which was bold and bright, was spoken to Zechariah, caused Zechariah to stumble in unbelief. Do y'all remember that? It's in Luke's gospel. Read it on your own. And the Bible says, because you have not believed my word, you shall be muted. And so Zechariah lost his voice during the period of time of the conception and during the time of the, the baby being formed in the womb of Elizabeth, Zacharias cannot celebrate. He cannot talk to her and commune and whisper in her how I'm looking forward to holding this child. His tongue has been muted. And you remember that Luke tells us then a little bit later that when the child is born, the day came that they would name the child. And so all the women, according to the tradition, said, we want to name him Zacharias. But the angel had told John, had told uh, the, had told uh, that the child's name was to be John, and so Elizabeth said, "Nope, 
It doesn't matter that he looks like his dad. It doesn't matter that his dad before him was named Zacharias. We're going to call him John. And all the women said, wait a minute, there's nobody in your family. doesn't matter. We're going to call him John. Why? Because an angel said to call him John. And so they said, well, we're going to go past you. We're going to go to Zacharias and say, Zacharias, what do you want to call? This is your only son. You've waited until your mature years to finally have a son. What do you want to call him? He can't tell. He can't speak. He said, bring me a writing board. He's just with his hands. He motions, bring me a writing board. And he scribes out in Hebrew, Johanan, John. And I believe in my heart of heart that the moment that he got to that final letter in the alphabet of, of casting John on the writing tablet, it was at that moment that the Spirit of God loosed his muted tongue, and he said, his name shall be John. And when he did, all the people marveled because they knew this was of God. And then he took the child, held him in his hands, and he spoke the same prophecy over John that God had spoken to him through the angel nine months earlier. And he said, you, my son, shall be the prophet of the highest. You will go in front of him. You will declare the right ways of the Lord. God has his call upon you. And so I believe in Luke's gospel, the third chapter, when it says the word of God came to John, what word was it? The word that his daddy prophesied over him 30 years had circled the earth year after year, one year, two years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, because when God loses a word, it does not return to him void but it will cause to come to pass what he says it will do and it found its resting place of a man by the name of John in the wilderness who doesn't have a word he doesn't have a message he doesn't have a podium he doesn't have a congregation but in that moment he's got a word from God and he begins to shake the whole nation his message is simple repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus is validating his ministry. He said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A soft-clothed priest? What did you go out to see? A rich, a rich descendant of a king? He said, but I want you to know that the man that stood in the banks or on the banks of the river Jordan crying repent is not only a prophet, he is more than a prophet. He is the fulfillment of a spoken word of God that has come to pass in your generation. Let me tell you today, the reason I brought you to this text is to say this today. I believe that we need more in our generation than just uh, contemporary churches. I believe we need more than three-part sermon series. I believe we need more than just trying to teach you how to, uh, again, have a good family or how to become prosperous in the kingdom of God. I believe that God needs people in the earth today that have a conviction of the word of God down in their spirit and that when they open their mouths, they're speaking the word of almighty God. That's what I believe God is desiring to do in our generation. And so he makes a comparison here and he says there are a lot of other people that are, you know, have certain attributes in that they dwell in king's houses and they're clothed in soft raiment. But he said, I'm telling you, it's a new hour and a new day. He said, for from the days of John the Baptist until now. I love this passage of scripture. He said, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violent and the violent take it by force. What does that mean? That means that Israel who had fallen was 
now hindering men coming into the kingdom of God through the religious tradition. They were robbing men of the, uh, of the, of the truth of the word of God. But he said because of the preaching of John, a stirring has taken place in the land again. And men and women are passing through Judaism. They're passing through Roman occupation. And they're pressing into the kingdom of God. And I'm telling you, I'm looking forward in my day. I'm looking forward in my hour when the church becomes more than a social club. I'm looking forward to the hour in my day when we as the church have godly convictions that pierce our soul one more time. And men and women know what it's like to bear an anointing from God, a conviction from God, and a call from God. And to be distinct and to be holy and to be authoritative and be unashamed of who they are in Christ Jesus. That's what I'm looking for. Jesus said, you may be looking for something else when you went out into the wilderness. I'm telling you, John's message was bold. We live in a generation when nobody wants to hear a bold preacher. We live in a generation when people have itching ears, heaping to themselves teachers. We live in a generation where you're darned if you do and darned if you don't. We live in a generation where as a pastor, it's just hard to get it right. Preach too hard, folks will leave. Preach too, you know, don't preach hard enough. They say, well, I don't feel nothing when I go to church. Let me tell you, church family, we need a shift. We need a shift in the American church. We need an anointing that penetrates into the ears of the people until you can no longer sit under the sound of preaching with ungodliness and carnality and wickedness in your life when you look like the church on the outside, but inside you are full of dead men's bones. And I know John's message was provocative. Did you know here's what his first sermon was when people showed up to hear him preach? Oh, ye generation of vipers. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That doesn't get you on TBN in our generation or Daystar. But I'm telling you, church family, something is missing in the American church. We've watered the gospel down. We've arrived at the place where preaching does not have the conviction that it once had. And if people feel conviction, they will flee. Why? Because men love darkness rather than light. Let's go just a little bit further. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. And I'm telling you, you have to be spiritually forceful. This is not a generation to be passive. Let me tell you, the pornographers are not passive. The drug pushers are not passive. Are you hearing me? Those that are promoting immorality on our television where our children are being raised up in front of an MTV generation distorted by the view of the modern family with homosexuality, you know, and promiscuity penetrating into our homes and our imaginations. They are not passive. While the church hides behind four walls, afraid to lift up her voice, afraid to address anything at all that could be deemed as contentious because we want to just make everybody feel good about themselves let me tell you if you've got sin in your life you can't feel good the holy spirit will convict you until you deal with that conviction or until you become so hardened against it that the holy spirit's knocking on the door of your heart is no longer heard by your voice or by, by, by your spiritual ear and that's a dangerous place to be Let's go a little further. He said, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you will receive this, this is Elijah, which was for to come. There's that pro promise of the 15th verse. But he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now, Jesus shifts here. And I want to show you something. This is very unique to me. 
He said, whereunto shall I liken this generation? So Jesus uses this analogy, and he makes it in its first application to him and his ministry and John's as he applies it to the generation that's listening to him. Now, I don't know if this is a large crowd. You know, we know that when he, was on the ser- when he spoke the Sermon on the Mound, there were 5,000 men plus women and children, potentially 15,000 people. But sometimes Jesus just spoke to one person. So I don't know if there's a great multitude or just a few that are hearing this, but Jesus said, I'm going to take the opportunity to talk about this generation. He said, it's like, look at this parable that he gives here. He said, it's like children that are seated in the markets. And they're calling unto their fellows, and they're saying, well, we have piped unto you, and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and you have not lamented. He said, and so put this in the analogy for just a moment. He said, we played both types of music, and you're indifferent to both. He said, it's like men or children in the marketplace. He said, so some are playing a festive music, and they're trying to get a response. No response. So some say, well, we'll drop down to the funeral dirge to see if we can get a response, and no response. And so then he makes the application. He said, look at John. Consider John's ministry. John's ministry was uh, very separated from the religious order of the day, Judaism, and even from the common people. He did not go to the common people. The common people came to him. He was in the wilderness, and he kept himself from a lot of things. And he said, John did not come eating and drinking. And you know what you said about him? He's got a devil. He's so hard. He's so, he just, John just, I I can't listen to John. I can't listen to John because he just condemns me. He called me a viper. Can you hear people? Can you hear people making that association? Can you? And then that, in that generation, he called me a viper. I'm a son of Abraham. Remember what Jesus said, or John said, don't think that you're being a son of Abraham has any merit in the eyes of God. God can take these stones. Oh, y'all hear what I'm saying? I'm preaching better than y'all shouting right here today. He said, God can take these stones and make children of Abraham, so don't try to hide behind that. And so Jesus said, John didn't eat or drink, and you said he had a devil. He said, so the son of man came along. He just went into people's houses. He just hung out with people. He said, I went to, the, to wherever people were gathered, and he said, I ate and drank. And look what he said. And when I did, here's what you said. Well, he's a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, and he's a friend of publicans and sinners. He said, but wisdom is justified of our children. I'm telling you, we're living in a very indifferent generation today in America when the church does everything it can to reach people. We have all different kinds of churches. We have churches that are a little sharper than others. We have some that are a little softer than others. We have some that do this kind of music and some that do that kind of music. We have some that reach out with this type of outreach. We have some that reach out with this type of outreach. We have some that have contemporary facilities and some with ancient cathedrals. And all the while, the men and women of our generation are just indifferent. Why? Because men love darkness rather than light. That's the generation in which we live. I want to challenge you today, church family. There is something at work in the American culture. It's been at work for a long, long time. It supersedes our political war that we see, uh, you know, on television, on Fox News and CNN News from Republican and Democrat and this debate and this candidate. It supersedes it. There is something at work in our midst We are going to live in the generation in America where men and women have hastily and quickly cast aside religious restraint. They have turned from the right way.
I'm being honest with you. Something is at work in our culture today. Here's what the apostle uh, Peter said. Peter warned of this day right here. He said, there will come a day when many will follow their pernicious or their sensual ways. And by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Listen to that. The way of truth. The way of truth. Let me tell you. Say, well, Pastor, what's the truth? We live in the generation today when propagated to our American culture is that any way you want to get to God, you can get to God. You can go through Islam. You can go through Hare Krishna. You can go through Judaism. You can build an idol, a statue, and call it God. You can get there any way. And if you say there's any other way than just a universal way of getting to God, then you're in error, and we're propagating the truth. Well, let me tell you what the truth is. I don't care what the politicians tell you. I don't care what the seminaries tell you. It doesn't matter to me. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That means not through a Muslim mosque. That means not through a Jewish synagogue. That means not through anything of any Eastern, uh, you know, religions bowing before Buddha or Confucius or any such thing or an enlightened eye or any type of New Age movement. You can't hug a tree and be welcomed into the kingdom of God. You've got to acknowledge that God sent his son to die on the cross so that men would have access to the glorious love and the power and the grace of God. The only way to God's eternal glory is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ spilled on the cross of Calvary. It's the message that Jesus taught. It's the message his apostles took and ran with. It's the message that brought the Reformation. It's the message that brought the American people to their knees during the Revolutionary War. And it is the message that will turn an ungodly generation back to the ways of God, Jesus Christ, and Him crucified. There is no other gospel. There is no other way. There is no other message but Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, men love darkness rather than light. Peter said their eyes are full of adultery and they cannot cease from sin. They have beguiled unstable souls. They have a heart they have exercised with convictions or with uh, covetous practices. They have become cursed children. Many want us to think that in our generation, everything's going to get all better. Everything's going to be so good. The church is going to be so contemporary and we're just going to be liked by everybody. No. Let me tell you. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. Because men love darkness rather than light. 2 Timothy 2 and 13 said, Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But here's what Paul told Timothy. But you got to continue in what you have learned. That's why we want you to learn the Word of God. That's why I told you, I said, I'm going to be different than many of the pastors. I will do my very best to disciple my church family in a doctrinal belief uh, that when all this doctrine comes from every, every way, you can easily discern it. You say, Pastor, you know, again, go back to the analogy of counterfeit money. Those that identify counterfeit money do not study counterfeit money. They study the real thing. And when they see the, the counterfeit, they easily see the contradiction because their eyes have been fixed on the real thing if you'll get your eye fixed on the truth of the word of God when you hear a lie 
Come on, you'll easily recognize it right there because you've been affixed upon that which is true. My God, that's good preaching there today. Amen. Let me go a little bit further in this passage of Scripture for just a moment of time. I've got a couple things to just make a correlation, and then I'll close today. But I just want to take a moment of time about the church. I want to take a moment of time also about our culture in America today. Let me take a moment to talk about church growth. Church growth is a difficult thing in our culture today. It's just a difficult thing. Now, if we were to pass out beer and marijuana, we could probably grow a pretty big church here. Come on, is that right? Now, that sounds foolish, but it's actually true. See, because we live in a generation that just wants to be pacified, a generation where they expect religious leaders to affirm them even if they are walking in iniquity. Now, there's a difference between loving someone and affirming someone who's walking in iniquity. The Bible teaches us about love, the agape love of God, but the Bible says about the agape love of God, it does not rejoice in iniquity. I cannot celebrate your sin. I'm just being honest with you. I cannot throw a party about your sin. I rejoice in truth because the love of God rejoices in truth. And so just very quickly today, it's a difficult thing to grow a church. And oddly enough, the churches that have greater numerical growth seem to be the churches that have watered down. I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm not trying to be con condescending. I'm just being truthful. Because if you preach too hard of a gospel in our generation, people will just puff up like a toad frog, and they'll leave, and they'll go find another church. They're not committed to the pastor. They're not committed to the doctrine. They just want somebody to scratch their itching ears because we've been seduced by a spirit in our generation today. Let me tell you another thing that I see happening that I'm very much concerned about just real quickly as it relates to our culture in America. Just real quickly, let me borrow from some of the words of our founding fathers for just a moment because their words, are, they, those words unfortunately are coming to pass right before us. John Adams in a speech to the military in 1978, or not, excuse me, 1798, warned his fellow countrymen stating this real quickly. Now, there's so much said about Republican and Democrat and all this in the political world, but that's the surface level. That's not the real issue. That's not the real issue at all. Listen to this. We have no government, John said, armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. What he said is it takes morality and religion, and when he meant religion, he meant the Christian religion, based upon biblical principles. That's the context by which he spoke. He said, we will not have an army capable of contending with human passions that are unbridled by morality and religion. He said, our constitution was made only for a moral and a religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. You better guard yourself because you are going to live in the days of lawlessness. You're going to live in the days of warfare on the streets farther, uh, much farther than what you saw this weekend when there were protesters protested Trump coming to Chicago. We're going to live in a day when men and women that have cast off any true religious conviction are contending with anything that is supposedly religious in their eyes. 
Noah Webster said, as he wrote, let me just share with you just a couple more. The Christian religion in its purity is the basis and rather the source of all genuine freedom and government. And I am persuaded that no civil government of a Republican form can exist and be durable in which the principles of that religion do not have a controlling influence. Unfortunately, we have fallen prey and we have failed to heed the warnings of those founding fathers and we are arriving at a place of lawlessness of lawlessness in our culture today and let me tell you i'm not trying to you know just be the bearer of bad news i'm just trying to warn you let me tell you long before hitler crossed over into poland long before he crossed over into holland something was brewing are y'all listening to me, church family? This is not, I mean, there is an evil at work today that calls good evil and evil good and that stands against anything that might associate itself with biblical Christianity. And you better gird up, as the scripture says, the loins of your understanding. This is not the time to play church. It's no longer the time to be the indifferent church. It's the time to make up our minds and say, we're going to be the church. Come on, the called out saints of Almighty God who love not our lives even unto death because we are a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. And we will refuse to bow. Let me tell you one thing. I'm looking for the day and when pastors are no longer afraid of losing their nonprofit status to address the immoralities of the evil American government. I don't care. Take it if you want to. Obama can have it. The next, I don't care. I'd rather pay taxes on it than to have my voice muted. Because a muted prophet is a worthless prophet. Are you hearing what I'm saying? A muted prophet is a worthless prophet. We need men and women to stand up and be bold and authoritative because you are the light. You reflect the love and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And we can no longer be indifferent as I prepare to close today. Let's follow this passage. And this is kind of mind-boggling boggling to me, this next five verses. The last five verse, verses are very warming. They invite Jesus. Jesus just spoke the truth. It's what's so odd about Jesus. He just spoke the truth and then said, come unto me, all you who are laboring are heavy laden. Because if you respond to conviction, you'll come. But if you love darkness, then you won't come to the light. This is what's, I'm closing with this. I know it's right at noon, and I preached about 37 minutes or so, somewhere in there, right there. But let, let, look at this. This is just something that's kind of amazing. Because I read articles, even in our Assembly of God magazines, and sometimes I just want to say, because the pastors are caught up too, and they say, well, the world's just waiting on you to love people. If you'll just love people, they'll come to God. That, show me in the Word of God. Where it says, if you just love people. Now, I believe in loving people. I do. But speaking the truth in love and refusing to bow to the pressures of lowering our spiritual principles, okay? That's what I believe in today. I don't know what you believe. I'm just reflecting on today. So, but I hear, I read these writings, and, and maybe their church has had some growth and some success. Thank God for it. I'm not against it. But, you know, Noah preached for 120 years. And he got eight people saved. That's all he could get. You know what? But he did, by faith, build an ark to the saving of his house. 
Look at this passage of Scripture because we say, well, you know, if we just love people, the world is just waiting to see the real Jesus. Yeah, yeah, the real Jesus came. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. His own said, away with him. Give us Barabbas. Because men loved darkness rather than light. This passage of Scripture, 20 through the 24th verse, Jesus upbraids three cities, two of which, did you know, antiquity has absorbed. They can't even find these two cities uh, in the dust uh, around Jerusalem. He said, woe unto Chorazin and Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida, we think of the pool of Bethesda, but that's not the same. Very quickly, he said, if the mighty works have been done in you, have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. And then he said to Capernaum, he said, You're ex- Capernaum is where he lived. Capernaum is where he healed, where people came to him. And, wait, and he healed right there. But it just that power of God didn't turn the hearts of all men to Jesus. Why? Why? When people saw him, did you remember the miracle at Capernaum, that one that's most prominent? He was at Peter's house preaching. And they tore down the roof and dropped a man that was paralyzed in his midst. Remember that? And he healed him. Jesus said, here, he said, Capernaum, you have seen so much. And yet what? He said, you're going to be brought down to hell. Because they didn't repent. Why? Because men love darkness rather than evil or rather than light. Men love darkness. Church family, we've got to guard ourselves. Be the light. Be who God's called you to be. Stand strong in the convictions of the Word of God. Don't compromise in the midst of this world here today. And don't judge the success of a church whether or not there are people sitting in the foyer trying to get in. Are y'all hearing me today? Lastly, Daryl, join me. We'll close with this right here. And at that time, how odd, right in the midst of this stern rebuke, saying to Capernaum, you're going to be cast down to hell and Chorazin and Bethesda, he said, if you had, you know, the works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which was outside the borders of, Jeru- or of Israel, he said, they would have repented. They would have responded. In the midst of all that, look at Jesus. He said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and of earth. Because why? Because you have hid these things from the wise and the prudent, and you have revealed them unto babes. Spiritual truths have not always been held by the masses. True spiritual truths have not always been held by the masses, but often by the remnant. Are y'all hearing me today? So, Pastor, I want you to hurry up because I'm later than I normally am and, you know, and all that, and I'm ready to eat. Listen, this is more important. A shift is taking place in our American culture, and we've got to be prepared It's not going to be as easy as it once was. The world is fighting for every spiritual privilege that you and I have been granted through our Constitution. Wants to take it from us and mute our voice because men love darkness rather than light. You say, well, Pastor, what's the invitation? Here's what Jesus said. Let's go. Even so, Father, it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth them but but the Son, and the fa- no one knoweth the, the Father but the Son. No one knows the Son but the Father. He said, and to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. How we need a work of God to reveal the Son. 
See, we think for whatever reason, when people come to our church, for whatever reason, we just seem to perceive that that means that they're, I guess, Christian. But if the Son has not been revealed to you, if you don't know Him, see, because when you know Him, you won't play these churchy games. I'm just preaching so much better. I'm just telling you. I see people come in here all the time. They sing and they worship for a little while. And then they're right back into that old distorted, confused, adulterous, you know, drunkenness, drug-induced culture. They didn't have a revelation of the sun. Because when you see the sun, I'm, on, I'm telling you, you'll sell your life out for him. Because he sold his life out for you. You'll lay your life down for him. He said, if you can just see the son, see me, the father will reveal him. Come, look at this. There's always an invitation. God's strong doctrine is never intended to drive people away. But it's to pierce past the callousness of the human heart. God's frank, strong, sharp, penetrating word is to pierce into the consciousness so that people say, you know what? I need Jesus. I need Jesus. You know, I'm going to just borrow this for just a moment of time because I like to be culturally relevant for just a moment, and I don't necessarily, I'm not making any argument for or against any political leader in this particular moment with so much contention going on, Hillary and Bernie, and, and now you've got, you've got Cruz and, and Trump and Rubio, and that dominates all the... And I know that, and Trump's got a lot of movement. I'm not saying yay or nay about him. And he flies in a plane and all that. But he did say this. He said, I've not asked God for forgiveness because I don't think I need it. That's the culture that we live in. But if he would read 2 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, he would discover that godly sorrow leads a man to repentance and whether you are in Trump's camp or Cruz's camp or Hillary's camp or Bernie Sanders camp you need conviction that leads you to repentance are y'all hearing me today Jesus said this come to me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest but you got to take my yoke upon you and you got to learn of me. you got to learn of Jesus. He said, I'm meek and I'm lowly in heart. Look what will happen. You'll find rest for your soul. You'll find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a contrast in one passage of Scripture. From affirming the ministry of John to reproving his generation to reproving three cities that saw miracles and signs and wonders but refused to repent. And Jesus then concluded his sermon and said, despite everything, if you'll just come, if you'll just come and trust in me, said you'll then have new life in the kingdom of God. Paraphrase. So today, I preached a hard message. I know that. I preached a message that was, I believe, at the surface level and at a deeper surface level is to he that has an ear. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. But I'm also preaching to someone today, maybe you have been indifferent. Maybe you've been caught in the middle. 
and you didn't know what to do with this person of Jesus, I'll tell you what to do with this person of Jesus. Surrender your life to him. Surrender to him. Surrender. Make him Lord of your life. Come on. Learn of him. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. That's the only way that I know to come to God is in humility. Not in arrogancy. Humility. Saying, Lord, I need you. I need you to forgive me. I'm telling you, we all needed forgiveness. Because my Bible says we were all sinners. We were all sinners, right? And come short of the glory of God. But God made a way. The blood of Jesus. Our heads are bowed, our eyes closed. I give the invitation here today. It's about 12 minutes after 12. I'm finishing this message today. I want Christians praying. Don't think about your afternoon activities. Don't think about greeting anybody outside the foyer. Give me just two minutes. Let people pray right now. Pray. Pray right now. There may be somebody under the sound of my voice that's been.